on August 30th of this year, in the Federal Register, OSHA published its notice of proposed rulemaking and a request for comments on the idea of having third-party persons accompany an OSHA inspector on a physical inspection, a walk-around inspection. This is going to represent, I think, a significant change in how OSHA conducts its physical inspections on private property. And, and the comment period is very brief. So we think that uh, employers ought to try and understand what's in the proposed rule and get moving and, uh, and mobilized as quickly as possible to try and make sure that their comments are given a fair hearing. Tara, that's the subject of the September 20th, 2023 episode of the OSHA 3030. I'm Manish Rath, and welcome. Welcome to the OSHA 3030. Okay, so this month's OSHA 3030, Taylor, as you know, it's a, it's a great topic. As I said before, I'm Manish Rath, and... I'm an attorney here at Keller and Heckman, and I've been practicing for short of 30 years, about 28 years, and almost entirely in the field of management side, occupational safety and health law, uh, labor and employment law. And, and this is one of those issues that's, that really is about as impactful as anything I've seen in all of that time. Uh, Taylor, I'm really grateful to you for joining us on this topic. This is uh, maybe maybe one of the ones that you and I have had an occasion to, to interact with. Uh, this issue in some of our casework. So, so Taylor Johnson, another attorney at Keller and Heckman, uh, here on our OSHA team. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, pleasure to be here, Manish. As always, Taylor, let's go ahead and get into this. Um, yeah. Why don't we first talk about the legal background? This is the culmination of a long story that goes even before 2013 when OSHA issued a a memo, uh, but it really starts with the Occupational Safety and Health Act. Well, yeah, absolutely. And then I also think, you know, from there, the next logical place to go would be to talk about that memo, uh, the 2013 uh, Richard Fairfax memo, um, which is kind of at the center of a lot of this action here. Well, that's right. And Taylor, in that memo, they, they discussed the history going back to, to just one year after the promulgation of the Act, 1970, mm-hmm. and the promulgation of this rule, which is 1903.8, uh, which was promulgated in 1971. And then this memo was issued in 2013, promptly instigates a lawsuit against the agency. Yep. So that's in Texas federal court. Right. That's the NFIB lawsuit. I think you really can't tell the story here of this proposed rule without, you know, getting into that lawsuit. And then the proposed rule itself. Um, so, you know, we'll actually go into the into the uh, proposed rule and, you know, kind of parse it out and, and figure out exactly what OSHA is proposing here. Well, Taylor, I think after that, we'll wrap it up with what employers should do, as we always do. But I think this one's special because it's a a rule we're discussing rather than a case. Right. And uh, I think what employers need to do in anticipation of the possibility that this proposed rule becomes a final rule in some shape that's similar to what we're looking at right now, mm-hmm. or uh, in addition, how to respond to this proposed rule and, and prepare comments and what, what those comments should look like. Right. So exactly. really important section this time around for what employers should do. Okay, well, why don't we start with the legal background? So as we all know, Congress enacted the Occupational Safety and Health Act 1970, and that's the enabling statute that created OSHA, the agency, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. And it also set forth uh, the authority, two authorities for the agency, at least. One of them is the power, congressionally uh, empowered authority to conduct inspections. Mm -hmm. 
uh, at work sites, but the other is the power to promulgate rules. Right. And both of them seem to come colliding in an intersection in this storyline. That's exactly right. So so from the OSH Act, then you get this regulation uh, that we'll be talking about a lot today, this 1903.08C. Um, it's sort of two key pieces here. The first is that a representative authorized by employees shall be an employee of the employer. So I think another way just to say that is that this authorized representative, as the as the regulation currently stands, Monish, um, you know, has to be an employee. Yeah, well, that that's when it comes out in the statute seems plain enough, right. clear clear enough to anybody. And then when in 1971 they promulgate a regulation interpreting it, it really seems to have a uh, dichotomous. Uh, presentation. The first is that the inspection and the compliance officer may be accompanied by an authorized representative of the employees. Mm -hmm. But it, it states it as a requirement that the representative authorized by the employees shall be an employee of the employer. Then it goes into the very next subsection, which says, if there's a third party who's accompanying the compliance officer, in parentheticals, it says, such as an industrial hygienist or safety engineer, then that third party can only accompany the inspector if their accompaniment is reasonably necessary to conduct an effective and thorough physical inspection. That reasonably necessary language. Key. Key. It's been followed by compliance officers for the following 50 years and suddenly in 2013 begins to bedevil the agency uh, because they they're troubled by the limitation that if they want to bring a third party on, this idea that the third party needs to be reasonably necessary to conduct an inspection seems to me to be uh, the underlying issue that that promulgates this 2013 memo. Yep, absolutely. So, so then we get to 2013. Right. So in, in 2013, the Deputy Assistant Secret Secretary for OSHA at the time, Richard R Fairfax. Richard Fairfax, who right. well respected by. Everyone on all sides, I think, or almost everyone on all sides, and and for good reason. He's a thoughtful and uh, conscientious uh, participant in in the dialogue of how to make workplace workplaces safer. Right. So, and I've worked with him uh, on a number of matters, and uh, always found him to be so. So, in 2013. He's presented with a request from a stakeholder, a union. Right, right. So these are, we talk about these all the time on this program, these questions that come in um, from stakeholders to OSHA. And then in, in many instances, they'll turn them around and the answers will be what we call letters of interpretation. So this happens in 2013. It becomes uh, you know penned to the Fairfax memo, essentially. Um, and it permits, it's the opinion of Fairfax at the time that non-employees are permitted to accompany OSHA during the, the walk-around portion of the inspection. Right, and he, he comes up with some examples of why they might be reasonably necessary in his memo. Uh, I think what's interesting is he does present some some authority, some historical authority. He goes back to the congressional record mm -hmm. and points out that that when in 1970 the act was being debated in Congress, that this issue came up and sponsors of the bill or supporters of the bill had supported the idea that a compliance officer, um, his inspection may or her, her inspection may be improved by having accompaniment by an employee representative. Uh, Senator Williams of New Jersey said that the opportunity to have the working man himself and a representative of other working men accompanying inspectors is manifestly wise and fair. And that quote, Richard Fairfax quoted in his 2013 memo, and I think it's a, a well-phrased justification for for the idea that 
an authorized representative who's at least at a minimum an employee right could improve upon the process of a, sure. a better inspection sure but the question that richard fairfax is asked to address for the union stakeholder who asks for a letter of interpretation is whether or not non-employee right. representatives right. Uh, or so-called representatives could accompany the compliance officer as well yeah and this is what sort of causes a lot of the, you know, the, the some concern, I would say, from the employer community at the time. Um, it not only is Fairfax saying that non-employees can be those representatives and can accompany during the walkthrough, but he also goes so far as to say that um, if you're at a union, if you're at a, a work site that's non-unionized, that you can actually have a, a, a union official um, sort of be that employee representative. So. Right. And he's clearly spotted the problem with his opinion the language that this third party has to be reasonably necessary to conduct the inspection. Right. And so he gives a few examples of when somebody might be reasonably necessary. Those examples, I think they're of questionable necessity, but the union representative, maybe the least so. We should talk a little bit more about that, but that's that's the essence of the Richard Fairfax memo. Right. And as I mentioned earlier, promptly invites a lawsuit by NFIB, the National Federation of Independent Businesses. This is a very highly regarded association representing small businesses and uh, is is the self-styled voice of small businesses. And they have uh, been very effective, as you know, Taylor, in bringing challenges to the Occupational Safety and Health Administration through suits just like this on a number of occasions where the NFIB has believed, A, that the agency has overstepped its congressional authority, right. and B, that that in overstepping, it has injured or impacted unfairly small businesses in particular, which is its its sort of stakeholder mandate. Right, right. And so, so the NFIB sued and said to court, we, we think that this interpretation letter plainly uh, contradicts what the 1971 regulation that the agency itself promulgated says. The agency said that you can only bring a third party. You can only bring a uh, representative if they are an employee of the employer, and uh, the third parties have to be reasonably necessary. And they don't think that uh, the NFIB in bringing the suit didn't think that OSHA had made its case that this expansive opportunity for a compliance officer to bring third parties uh, was confined to its own idea that it had promulgated in its 1971 rule. So right. the two challenges are that it's it's violative of the regulation on its face, right? And B that it needs to go through proper rulemaking if right. it wants to make a change, right? And so the court ends up agreeing with NFIB on that second point that that sort of on its face um, that this needed to go through notice and comment rulemaking that it plainly contradicts this this requirement that the representative be an employee, you know, that shall in the in the 1903 language. But then, and this is where I think Manish, I had to read this a few times to be honest with you to to, to figure this out that. Because you've got that holding, but then you also have the court finding that the Fairfax memo is sort of this valid interpretation under the Administrative Procedures Act and that, you know, OSHA, you know, can sort of go forward with this, but it needs to go through the rulemaking process. So it was sort of hard to figure out who won in this case, in my opinion. Well, that's right. The NFIB filed two counts and the court agreed with the NFIB on the first one. And on the second one, it agreed with OSHA that it had stuck to the confines of, of the language. But ultimately, on that first one where NFIB prevailed... The court said, look, this is well beyond the plain language of uh, of 1903.8, right. which says that the representative shall be an employee of the employer. Uh, I agree with you, by the way, that I thought that was a tough read. I agreed 
that the court came to the right conclusion, yeah. but their reasoning that this violated the plain language, uh, that the representative has to be an employee of the employer, is not how I read the face of 1903.8. Right. I think that it is dichotomous that either it's an employee of the employer or a third party is reasonably necessary. And the court may have acknowledged that implicitly by saying that they didn't think that this was a, a case where reasonable necessity had been established, but they didn't say that. Right. That's, they just yeah. said that the regulation is confined to employees of the employer. And that's not quite the full reading of 1903.8. That's right. the problem, right? Right. Absolutely. I, you sort of kept, I kept reading it, looking for that point, and then it never quite came through, Right. So. Right. But nevertheless, the NFIB did prevail. And the effect of that is that the courts had struck this, essentially this stealth rulemaking, this letter of interpretation, which the court said stood in the place of a rule without having gone through rulemaking. Right. So OSHA withdrew its, what we call the Fairfax Memo, uh, what what the agency refers to by the requestor's uh, name, the union, uh, and and withdrew it and, and then stated that they're going to have to go through rulemaking since that's what the court uh, implied was expected of them on such matters. And that brings us to earlier this year, uh, where that sort of notice of proposed rulemaking was issued um, by OSHA. And then on August 30th, um, we finally got to see the, the text of the, the proposed rule. Um, and, and that was published in the Federal Register. And now OSHA is seeking comments. Right. This And when they came out the notice uh, at the beginning of the year, we, we covered that in an episode. We did. This may be the only instance that I can recollect in uh, over 10 years of doing the OSHA 3030, where we've covered the same topic twice in the same calendar year. But it is of such physical and tangible impact upon the workplace, particularly during the conduct of an inspection, but even in everyday life at employers' establishments in preparing for such an event that that certainly merits uh, coming back to it again now that the proposed rule yeah. is in print and we see exactly what change the agency is proposing. So let's talk about the proposed rule now. You have a pretty good sense of the history of why we're here. In short, the standard was promulgated in 1971, remains untouched till now. In 2013, OSHA tries to expand it through a letter of interpretation. A federal court strikes that down, says you have to go through rulemaking. Now OSHA is going through that rulemaking. Right, right. And that's where we are now. So the proposed rule essentially states that the representative in question who could accompany a compliance officer must be authorized by the employees. Right. It doesn't state how to know whether or not the employees have uh, acceded to or conceded that that individual is indeed the authorized representative, Yeah. which is weird because the style of this publication in the Federal Register is worker walk-around representative designation process. Right. But I don't see a full description of a process for designating a representative. It's the one thing that really falls short yes. in the Federal Register notice, yes. uh, even though that's the title of, of the entry. Yep. So so that's the first thing that it calls for is that the representative must be an authorized employee of the employees. The key thing or one of the key things here is that the proposed rule is going to change this language that we went over earlier, this language that you sh you have to be essentially an employee uh, to be this representative to now the shall has changed to a may. So now you may be an employee of the employer or third party. So kind of, you know, gives uh, the text here is kind of giving leeway to have OSHA, you know, implement the Fairfax memo, essentially. Right. And and that shall to may seems to me to be OSHA's idea that 
this is what was holding them back in the NFIB suit. Yes. I don't know that I agree that that's the only problem with their interpretation of the rule. Nevertheless, they've changed it to May. The second thing they've said is that a representative who is not an employee may accompany a compliance officer during an inspection if there's good cause shown, if good cause has been shown, that the representative is reasonably necessary to conduct an effective and thorough inspection, and that they have relevant knowledge, skills, or experience with hazards in the condi uh, or conditions in the workplace or similar workplaces, or language skills, as an example of reasonably necessary. Then what the agency does in the Federal Register is it gives some examples of instances where a third party in OSHA's view could be reasonably necessary. Right. So, you know, there's sort of a litany of these here. The first being a local union leader, a business agent, a safety and health specialist. Again, these are all sort of OSHA giving these examples in the in the preamble to the rule here of, of what could meet this sort of reasonably necessary test. Right. Like a, and one of them is like a union leader or a business agent for a union or a union safety and health specialist. Right. Right. The others. But, are... they, but they don't say, Taylor, when they identify that. How does that person, by mere virtue of their title, become reasonably necessary? Right. Nor do they explain an example of when, if a local union leader or business agent is reasonably necessary, what are the kind of fact patterns that would lead to that being necessary and right. why alternatives wouldn't also be suitable uh, to a business agent? Yeah. I, I think with all these, we're sort of waiting for the example to expand and say how this would be reasonably necessary. I think a lot of these on their face, I, I think it's it's a bit of a stretch. You know, a representative from a worker advocacy group or a community organization, a safety organization or a technical representative for the equipment used. Again, hard to see exactly how reasonably necessary these individuals would be. It's true, but I, I think that they, everything in life uh, falls on a spectrum and so does this. And I'd say, you know, a technical representative for the equipment used at the work site certainly has a better argument, if even an insufficient argument, sure. than a business agent for a union right. or a community organization's representative. Right. There's no effort put in the Federal Register notice to explain why such people could be, conceivably could be, reasonably necessary to conducting a thorough and effective inspection. Yeah. Yeah. So another one that fits that example is uh, OSHA says, well, what about multi-employer work sites where maybe maybe there's two different uh, employers who have employees working side by side. And so so maybe because of that, employees would want somebody to represent them. They don't explain the how that makes it reasonably necessary. Right. And they say, well, maybe one employer has a union and a union representative and the other doesn't. So maybe the employees of the non-unionized shop would want the union rep for the other employer's employees to represent them as well. Maybe they would, but that's not what the standard, even as they're proposing it in the Federal Register, calls for. Exactly. It still has to be reasonably necessary. Right. Uh, so, so those are, are open questions that I think OSHA does a very quick job of whistling past. Uh, then there's one where they observe, and, and Richard Fairfax had mentioned this in his 2013 memo as well, a possibility that an occupational safety and health compliance officer comes on site and finds that the employees are not fluent in English. And so he's unable to interact with them. Yeah, I, I would say that this is the one that I think their OSHA is on the most solid footing with in terms of being reasonably necessary. I think in this situation where you truly have a work site where, you know, 
everyone speaking a different language than the inspector, I could see how it would be reasonably necessary to sort of bring on that third party to, to, to be an interpreter in between the two parties. If you believe, I think that that's a fair point, Taylor. If you believe that, A, that the incapacity to get information from the employees is stifling to the inspector's ability to draw sufficient information during his inspection, and you believe that the translator is also the adopted representative by those employees, the authorized representative through a proper authorization sort of methodology, yeah. then I, I see your point that that may be the strongest case of all of these. Um, and I'm, I'm mindful that though shown in the face of its own language says that there has to be a showing beforehand of these elements. And I don't know how they go about doing that. They don't certainly spell that out here. And that's, that's a, a gaping omission that leaves compliance officers in a very uncomfortable position of having to establish uh, what that might look like. Right, right. Absolutely. Finally, and this one maybe is the most troubling of everything here in the Federal Register. The final example that they give is that employees, maybe maybe an employee might be uncomfortable speaking candidly with a compliance officer and a third party might, might be um, a, an assistance or an aid in that process. Uh, yeah. That is, if, unless there's a better explanation that I'm missing, that is a completely unsubstantiable and highly problematic assertion. Yeah. Um, Taylor, you pointed out one of the big problems with it is I don't know how you establish who's uncomfortable speaking or on what basis you're making that conclusion. Right. Incredibly subjective. And I think logistically, how does this work? Does the employee have to say, hold on, before we get started here, I feel uncomfortable or... Can the can the uh, you know compliance officers sort of you know plant that seed? Can they start by saying oh, it looks like you're uncomfortable? I, I just have no idea how this actually plays out in the field. Yeah, in the absence of any clarity, doesn't that give the compliance officer enormous unprescribed um, power to just say, "Well, I'm bringing a third party in because these employees look uncomfortable." Right. And what happens when an employee presents as uncomfortable, and the employee the compliance officer makes that call to bring in a third party to aid him? Is aiding reasonably necessary? Is discomfort something that presents a reasonably necessary right. kind of bar? Right. I, it's hard to imagine who's very comfortable in an OSHA inspection. So. And then what happens when all the other employees say, no, no, we're very comfortable. Right. Or exactly. maybe they say, well, perhaps we're uncomfortable, but we'll be even more uncomfortable with a stranger coming in yeah. who's not even uh, working under the aegis of government authority. Yeah. Uh, so so that might that might increase. Who's, who's to say that the third party will aid in the discomfort rather than exacerbate. Right, exactly. Uh, that That's something I don't think a compliance officer has the wherewithal to convincingly establish. Yeah. And, and as a consequence, this rule, which I think in its intent is trying to further empower a compliance officer, is really putting him in a much more difficult position. Yep. And is subjecting that compliance officer routinely to being challenged on things that really don't need to be the subject of debate. He should or she should uh, avoid the debate altogether by sticking to actually authorized employees where such people actually exist. Right. Exactly. I mean, the burden falls on them, right? To, to, to you know, show that this third party is truly a representative. I mean, all those things that you were just talking about are things that the compliance officer has to kind of walk through in the field, you know, during the inspection. It seems like it places, you know, an incredible burden on them. It's true. Uh, so, so we're, I think some of the biggest concerns lie for the employer community is, as you say, that the compliance officer has to make a showing that the third party is truly representative of the employees. And second, that the compliance officer has to make a showing 
that they're reasonably necessary. Right. Right. Um, so, so those two are a burden put on the compliance officer, but they are also a burden put on the employer community because they don't know. I don't think that there's anything here that spells out when the employer is put on notice as to, as to what that showing is. Right. Exactly. Or given an opportunity to challenge the sufficient the sufficiency of the showing of representative status or of reasonable necessity. Yep. Absolutely. And as a result of that, I think employers are concerned that that this, you know, this proposed rule could allow unionization outside of the certified bargaining process. I you know, I think that there, there's some legitimacy to that. Well, that's right. Which brings us to the next point that in my view, I've always understood that the National Labor Relations Act carefully prescribes the manner by which a an employee uh, unit can select their representative. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is twofold. It is not only that the employees and not the employer should be able to select their representative. Uh, if it was the employer, that would be a violation of the act. That would be employer interference. But also the secondary purpose historically underlying the National Labor Relations Act is to prevent the unrest that ensues when two unions competitively contend that they are the bona fide representative of a fixed unit. And because of that, the process by which the employees get to select their representative has been established over a longer than 70-year period. And OSHA is coming in and either upending that or perhaps they're implying that the employees need to go through that process first. I don't believe that is what they're implying. I think that they're suggesting that the compliance officer and the employee and some fraction of the employees can get together and pick a representative in a manner that is not in accordance with the prescription under the National Labor Relations Act. Yeah, I completely agree. And again, I think they're sort of surprised at the lack of clarity on how this is all going to play out here. Um, when do you get to pick, you know, d- does the compliance officer need to show up and and the employee representative or non-employee representative is, is already standing there ready to go? Um, you know, how does this interfere with you know, the, the fact that you can't sort of tip off employees to an expense, you know, employers to an inspection. I think there's just a lot of questions here. Well, that's right. That's right. So let's talk about some last remaining loose ends that I that I think you and I both see in the Federal Register notice. Uh, one of them, OSHA noticed that, noted that uh, these proposed revisions don't affect any other provision of Section 1903 that, that might have the effect of limiting participation in walk-around inspections. Uh, they're open-ended or uh, they don't get into any detail as to what that means. Right. I think essentially, at least how I read it, was that sort of these powers that the that the safety officer has to, to sort of, you know, limit who can come in or limit the inspection itself are still there. If someone's interfering with the inspection, for example, or, you know, if, if trade secrets start to become an issue, that those sections of, of the of the regulations are not going to be touched by this new this new proposed rule. That's right. But there are other provisions of 1903 that are incredibly important. And one of them is the opportunity to object to an inspection. Right. Um, right. It's interesting. The last comment I think we should make uh, before getting into what employers should do is it's interesting that when they gave all of those examples of what they think are reasonably necessary, they pointed out that the proposed revisions do not change the precondition that the compliance officer must determine that any third party representative is reasonably necessary right. to the conduct of an effective and thorough inspection. So when they say, as an example, the multi-employer worksite or union uh, business agents, they they say in the on the face of the Federal Register notice that that is only within the confines of that which 
the Kosho can show is reasonably necessary. I don't know how they they intend to reconcile these two later on, but left on its face, they're they're in apparent contradiction. Mm -hmm. So Taylor, let's talk about what employers should do as a consequence of this proposed rule. Sure. So first, I think the you know comments. Um, if if you have concerns about this, which I, I think we've outlined just a few here, um, you know the deadline for comments is October thirtieth, twenty twenty three. Um, you know, and and be prepared to to play a part in this process. I think the agency may have indicated where they intend to go, notwithstanding what comments may be filed. They keep saying throughout the Federal Register, if you have comments about other examples of reasonable necessity, please file them. Yeah. But they certainly were not equally solicitous of comments as to what problems lie extant in their proposal. Right, right. The other thing I'd say just is a consequence of this whole subject of, of inspectors coming and presenting themselves unannounced, as the rule requires, at one of your establishments, and perhaps with a third-party so-called representative of the employees, I think it's important to rededicate yourselves in the employer community to preparing a business leadership as to the lawful and unlawful uh, ingredients of unionization processes, as well as the, the permissible uh, steps that employers can take in responding to unionization efforts. Uh, that kind of readiness is already too late if, if you see the first signs of unionization, particularly with the advent of shorter and shorter uh, periods for the for the unionization process. So that's, the, I think, one of the first things employers should do and do regularly, often and, and early. Absolutely. And then I think in the same vein, you know, preparing management for OSHA inspections. Um, so oftentimes, you know, employers will have a, an employee representative who's going to, you know, accompany OSHA during an inspection. And I think having that person, you know, cued into this new proposed rule and, and you know, who who really is an authorized representative, I think is going to be really important. Well, I think that's a great point, Taylor. You, you just can't be prepared enough. You have to be um, drilled and drilled and drilled to be ready for that surprise moment when a compliance officer shows up. And uh, oftentimes, I don't know how many times I've handled contesting an OSHA citation where underlying the fact pattern, the right person who had the best training was at another facility when a compliance officer mm -hmm. showed up. So maybe he's or she's responsible for two or three facilities over a 90 mile radius and is dashing back to in, in response to the appearance of an inspector. And so you really want that, that pr preparation and training and education and readiness to be shared by as large a number of people are, as are capable of being uh, drilled in, in this kind of readiness. Right. Absolutely. So we talked a little bit about trade secrets and properly designating these areas that are protected by trade secrets. O OSHA talks here about how, you know, this proposed rule isn't going to impact that that part of the regulation that protects trade secrets, you know, during inspections. So I think preparing for that and making sure that, you know, you know what those are before OSHA, you know, comes knocking is going to be important. Yeah, that's right. We represent a lot of manufacturers throughout the country and other sites, construction sites, et cetera. And they all vary in terms of the sensitivity of the um, of their operations. And amongst the most sensitive, we'll see signage. We'll see that visitors have to sign agreements before entering the premises mm -hmm. uh, with respect to trade secrets. Uh, and there's there's any number of measures by which you can establish unequivocally that certain areas have a greater sensitivity towards the protection of trade secrets. And employers should take those measures wherever possible so that when an OSHA inspection comes up, I think there's a lot of reasons, but one of the many reasons is when an OSHA inspection comes up, that those areas, it's it's more defensible that you intend to maintain certain certain restrictions, particularly with the inclusion of a third party. Exactly. 
um, consistently maintaining safety orientation for for all visitors. So you know, again, we we've given this advice many times: is that you know, when the when the kosher shows up for the inspection, if you require a safety training video or that they wear a certain PPE to make sure that you are you know implementing those measures on the safety and health officer we've, as well. Taylor, you and I visited uh, on site at uh, employer establishments, and we've gone through that orientation training, uh, and we've conducted on site internal audits where we've first had to do, it's ironic that you first have to do an orientation, safety orientation, and then conduct an audit as to safety. <laughs> but it's a massively important step because every establishment is potentially unique in its own hazards. And so so I always greet those orienta safety orientations with a great deal of seriousness. And so the employer who imposes them with seriousness should impose them unflinchingly upon not only the compliance officer as well, but any third parties that they intend to accompany them. Yep, absolutely. Um, and then finally, so state plan states. Um, so they have six months, uh, once this is a final rule, uh, to create a rule that's at least as effective. And so I think if you're an employer in a state plan state and you're wondering what this means for you, I think that timeline is something to keep an eye out for. We'll certainly be monitoring how state plan states tackle this. Yeah, you know, Taylor, that we've probably practiced in almost every state plan state uh, yeah. representing employers. And and I've reached out to some of the uh, attorneys who are general counsel to, or uh, in the office of the general counsel to several states on this issue. And it runs a range of, uh, all of them are very interested, keenly interested in the development of this uh, proposed rule. Absolutely. Uh, but it runs a range of, of folks who can see the um, additional power to the compliance officer as an advantage to the agency, all the way to some of them who spotted, like Richard Fairfax's comment, that this only uh, entangles the compliance officer in greater burdens and maybe needless uh, or easily avoidable disputes. Yep. And so they they have run a range as the feedback that I've been getting. Uh, but those are some of the steps that employers can take. If you have other uh, examples, feel free to shoot them out to us. Yep. Uh, and if you are intent on participating uh, in the comment process, I'd say reach out to your, your industry groups, trade sure. associations, et cetera, and to tell them that this is important and make sure that they get mobilized to, to file timely comments sharing some of your concerns. So that's the OSHA 3030. Taylor, that was a, a really important issue and I Absolutely. enjoyed doing that with you. Yeah, same. We've been doing this for over 10 years. All of our prior episodes can be found at khlaw.com slash OSHA 3030. Throughout the month in between episodes, continue to stay in touch with our uh, OSHA 3030 community. And so please, if you haven't connected with us through LinkedIn, send us each uh, LinkedIn Connect uh, invite and we will uh, we'll accept that connection. Uh, in the note, if you want to say I'm a member of the 3030, that'll that'll facilitate that process. Uh, and you can catch our episodes as a podcast as well as on YouTube. We we put this video with the slides on YouTube as well. So feel free to check it out there. Try, if you can, remember to, to like or rate those programs so that they're more easily searchable by your peers. Which brings me around to the last point that I always make. If you can remember to, please, and thank you for those who have been, forward this on to at least three new people uh, who are in safety and health or in the Office of In-House Counsel, when you get the next invitation for the OSHA 3030. That's the only registration fee we seek for the great and free content that we uh, put on every month. Taylor, you and I will be in Brussels, Belgium. This is a rare opportunity for folks who bring in materials from Europe to the United States or to Canada or vice versa that are hazardous materials and thus need to comply with U.S. HASCOM regulations or EU HASCOM regulations, GHS or U.S. Department of Transportation, or Canadian, right. because we're going to have at that program, a one-day program, the U.S. OSHA attorney, 
the U.S. Department of Transportation attorney, you, yep. or, or actually both, <laughs> uh, a Canadian right. attorney we've put together on the panel, which is a, a real catch. Yeah. And then our colleague here, Kevin Heckman's Brussels office, who's a fantastic attorney and extremely well versed on GHS matters. And so the, between the four of us being all together in one room to talk about HASCOM issues when bringing hazardous materials over the border from, from the EU to U.S. or Canada or vice versa is uh, exceptionally a rare opportunity. I'm not sure that any such programs ever been put together by anyone else before. Yeah. Uh, and so, so if it affects your industry, please, or your, your organization, please send a few folks up to that program. That's October 18th. Uh, again, it's a, a one-day program, and uh, we look forward to seeing you there. Our next episode of the OSHA 3030, if you can't join us in Brussels, we'll see you again here on the 3030 at 1 p.m. Wednesday, October 18th. And our sister programs are scheduled for 1 p.m. September 27th for the Tosca 3030, and Wednesday, October 11th at 10 a.m. for the REACH 3030. And if your organization is responsible for complying with Tosca or REACH, Make sure you spread the good word within your organization about those fantastic sister programs put on here at Keller and Heckman. On behalf of all of the staff here at Keller and Heckman's Washington, D.C. office who helped put this episode together, and Taylor Johnson and myself, thank you all for participating in this month's OSHA 3030. We're grateful for your ongoing dedication and loyalty to the program, and we look forward to seeing you next month. Until then, stay safe. Stay safe.